Welcome to the Flaps Podcast. Hello and welcome. We're back for another edition of the occasional series that is Flaps Podcast. Yeah, sorry about that. And welcome to our post-Olympic extravaganza. Mm, we thought we'd better try and get one out before the Rio Games come around. And with that in mind, we've got a very special celebrity pilot in this edition. And you'll have seen him on the telly. Well, just about. No thanks to Channel 4. To be sort of 850 feet over central London at night approaching the stadium was, was absolutely incredible. That's Dave Rawlins, who flew the Technum Twin over the Paralympics opening ceremony. Do you see it, Elliot? It was brilliant. The aircraft had sparks coming from it. That's nothing. I've seen one of your landings, mate. You regularly have sparks trailing behind you. Anyway, staying with the theme of disability flying, we'll also speak to the UK's first monocular pilot. He's Paul Ryan, and we're going to be hearing from him later on. Pablo Mason talks about the difference between military and airline captains. There I was at 35,000 feet, facing backwards, eating a salmon sandwich on my way to Barbados. And Mark is going to be unveiling his massive rabbit tattoo. My what? Well, you told me about it when we were chatting about the podcast. You told me you'd had a, a tattoo of a giant rabbit done. Eh? You said you'd had a hair tattoo. No, <laughs> Elliot, no. That was the air tattoo. Oh, I see. I yeah. went to the air tattoo at Fairford right. a couple of months ago. Didn't hear you properly, did I? I've got a report from there. No rabbit tattoo then, no. No, no, no. no, no. I want to think about it. It might be quite nice. No, thank you. Uh, and as the Olympic bandwagon rolls off to Rio, we'll catch up with the CAA to see how well behaved we all were during the Olympics. So it's time for another first on Flaps Podcast. We've had many celebrity pilots, but never a Paralympic ceremony opening Technam twin flying at night with a disability pilot. But he's on the phone now. Dave Rawlins joins Flaps Podcast. Hi, Dave. Hi there. How are you? All right. Thank you very much. And uh, we should point out you're at Silverstone in case you hear cars in the background. Um, and uh, see, see, that is that's show busy already. You fly aircraft over Paralympic opening ceremonies. You hang around with motor racing drivers. What are you like, Dave? I know, I know. The, the lifestyle that I've lead is uh, oh, it's crazy, absolutely crazy. Dave, amazing that what you did. I think it was an incredible fly past and, and really, really impressive opening to the Paralympics. Uh, we'll come to that in a minute. But first of all, tell us about yourself because you're a disabled flyer, aren't you? Tell us what your disability is and, and, and how you came to be disabled. Well, I was, um, I was injured in Afghanistan in 2008. My vehicle took a, a roll into a, uh, into a ditch about a week and a half before I was due to come home. And unfortunately, I was on top of it, um, went into into the ditch and it landed on top of me. And uh, after about a year and a half in, in Headley Court, I uh, I came across their ability and uh, they gave me the opportunity to start flying. So what's your actual disability? Is it, is it legs? Well, yes, yeah. I um, I completely lost my, my right pelvis and uh, have, uh, have trouble uh, walking long distances, sort of unsupported after what with a, a, a walking aid. So, and you mentioned air ability. These are the guys who, who do a lot of disabled flying, don't they? And they give they access to people with, with disabilities to get involved. So, how how did they uh, how did they teach you? And, and when did you start learning to fly? I started uh, back in back in March 2011, and um, I went down air ability at that time based down in Lasham, and um, I, I went for a trial flight. Uh, with them about a 20 minute trial flight and uh the the chief instructor who i flew with sort of said i think you know i really don't think you're gonna have a problem with flying the army at the time uh have a have a sort of a, a scheme called uh battleback who look at activities for, for injured servicemen and and flying was one of them and they they managed to support me through my ppl so i, I was flying with their ability for about a year and got my license at the beginning of this year and uh sort of um went on from there really 
Had you always harboured ambitions to learn to fly, Dave, or was it just something that you thought, well, now's the time to learn, really? Well, I, I kind of have my, um, my uncle's an air traffic controller in Jersey um, with a PPL, so I've always had a, a little bit of, I've done a bit of flying with him, and it, it's always something that, you know, I, I thought I wouldn't mind doing, but um, at the time I was, I was very career-orientated with the military and, and thought military was what I wanted to do, and flying was was always at the back of my mind and I, I never thought I was going to be lucky enough to do it. And uh, it, it turns out, you know, from something horrible came something quite fantastic, really. What has to be done to accommodate, you know, a disabled flyer to the aircraft? Because obviously, it, it, you know, if you, if you, you just bit of these legs, you need to use the rudder pedals. How, how, how's the plane modified? Uh, I was very lucky. I still got uh, full, full movement of my legs. So the rudders weren't a drama, but um, airability, all of airability aircraft are, are fitted with a, a hand control. Basically, you use the hand control instead of your legs. It operates the rudders, so you can do all your, all your tactics and your groundwork just using the hand control. Um, I'm very, well, kind of very lucky. I've still got enough pressure in my right leg that I can still push it, which is obviously one of the key things when you're flying a, a multi-engine aircraft. So how did the opening ceremony thing for the Paralympics come about? Mike Miller-Smith, who's the CEO of Airability, um, had a had a fluke meeting with the committee about three, three or four years ago and basically sort of said, wow, you know, this is something that Airability would love to do. And um, it was his kind of pipe dream from then. And uh, probably about six or seven months ago, we had a competition in-house. Um, we did a simulated competition and I was, I was very, very lucky to, to win it. I mean, we weren't, we weren't told what the prize was going to be. And uh, I mean, uh, originally, I think we were told it was going to be uh, maybe an, an hour in a, in a twin. And uh, after and they sort of said, well, actually, this is what you're going to be doing. I sort of sat and thought, wow. Well, so, do, uh, do you know, e- even the fact that you get to fly fairly low over a built-up area, uh, practically on fire at night, <laughs> at night with, li- <laughs> with lights and stuff on, I mean, that's, pr- that's pretty out of the ordinary in terms of GA flying, isn't it? Oh, oh without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, I mean we obviously, we ticked off a couple of first. I believe it was the, the first pyrotechnic display done at night um the first pyrotechnic display done over a capital city and and obviously the the first display done by a disabled pilot and to be involved in that is is absolutely incredible you're a record breaker (laughs) (laughs) the the aircraft it it looks spectacular dave how how difficult was it to organize for for the night flight for the pyrotechnics in particular oh it i mean it took um it took a lot of work and I'd, i'd probably say about a week a week and a half before things were looking a little bit great. Obviously, the aircraft has to have a, a full STC. Um, we were very lucky that uh, Gamma Engineering up at Fair Oaks took it on. They, they did all the modification. They put all the LED lights on. We, ha- we had a great design team um, behind the, the actual fork that held the Pyros, uh, Tim G's. I mean, we had a fantastic support network. Uh, and about a week before, uh, I think a few of us all sort of started and thought, this might not actually happen. And, and <laughs> luckily, there was enough people that actually believed in the project and it, and it went through. I d- I'd like to have seen the paperwork for that to go to the CAA. We'd like to fly at night with a disabled <laughs> pilot with loads of pyrotechnics coming off. That would have been an interesting moment with that landing on the desk, wouldn't it? I, I can imagine. But I mean, I, I, I have to put my hands up and all G's to the CAA, they did, uh, they did very well and, and they were really on site. Um, I managed to meet the, the CAA, obviously the CAA test pilot, I had to fly it and... They, you know, they were really open to the project and, and really sort of went, wow, this is fantastic. You know, we, we can't let this, you know, we can't let a bit of paperwork stop you from doing this. And, no. and it all worked out really well. What was the aircraft that you flew? It was a Technam Twin, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was a Technam Twin, Popper 
2006 Tango, one of Tim Orchard's, I mean, it's an incredible airplane to fly, absolutely fantastic, perfect airplane for the job. So I, I've kind of sort of um, got used to flying it, really. It's really nice to fly and then sort of back to flying a warrior is not, not quite the same. <laughs> uh, well, and you, you haven't got like sparkly bits on your warrior either, have you, or lights? I know, I know. No one, no one looks at you and thinks you're a UFO anymore. It's kind yeah. of depressing, really. <laughs> you, you mentioned Tim Orchard from Technam. He was with you on the flight, wasn't he? He was, yes, yeah. Um, I was very lucky. Tim, Tim was the sort of uh, my well, he's my right hand man massively. Um, he did all the all the radios and communication. He obviously pushed pushed the most important fire button. Um, <laughs> so it's really nice to fly with someone really professional who basically just went, "You do all the flying, and I'll manage everything else." Well, as, as, a, as a former Concorde driver, I should imagine he's used to pressing the button that makes it look look and sound spectacular. <laughs> I can imagine he probably is, and uh, probably going a lot faster than what we were doing. But um, <laughs> Tim, was, Tim was absolutely fantastic. It, and really, sort of, um, it, what, what's nice about it is every time I flew with Tim, I learned, I learned something new. Obviously, you were concentrating massively, and it, you know it's an important flight and a serious flight you needed to do properly. And it, from our side, seeing you in the sky, it looked amazing. What did it look like from the cockpit? Oh, I mean, to be sort of eight hundred and fifty feet over the central London at night, approaching the stadium was it was actually incredible. It took a, a couple of seconds to re- actually go into my mind. We're doing this for real now, and uh, as we approached the stadium, we could see all the all the flash photography going off, and I remember sort of kind of look over the top of the top of the nose just to see to make sure we're in the right place and and when we started to turn it i mean like we were in the stadium for probably about a minute or so but it, it went so quickly and uh and then we were we were sort of off again i mean it was only after when i started i thought this is what we've actually done and uh and very proud to be part of something quite big it went particularly quickly if you watched it on television that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> channel yeah. four well, channel four did mess that up didn't they Channel 4 did slightly mess up, yes, yeah. Um, from what I've heard, the, the rest of the world managed to see it. Well, it's on the internet as well. I mean, anybody now can Google it and find it. It's on YouTube, and it you know it looks as spectacular as it did on the night. It's just a shame that Channel 4 didn't broadcast it to an audience of, what was it, you know, 10 million people or something. <laughs> well, yeah, unfortunately, we, we can't turn back time and, and sort of undo the mistakes. I think the most important thing was that, you know, we were there, everyone in the stadium saw it. I'm sure Channel 4 is sorry for they're slightly missing it, but um, it's fine. But hey. it's, it, with the internet now, as, as Mark said, it doesn't really matter, does it? Anyone can go and see it. It's it's a brilliant thing, and it looks yeah. amazing. Um, but wh- exactly. where did you fly out of? Was it Fair Oaks you flew from? Yes, we did. We uh, we flew out of Fair Oaks, and then we were we were sort of um, we flew and held down to the south of Greenwich, just over uh, Greenwich Park, and uh, and then we're cleared into the Olympic airspace or the Olympic box, and uh, did our routine, and then departed back out down to the south. Not a particularly um, difficult bit of nav, though, really. That is, it just looked for the big sort of the, the big shiny thing on the ground with lots of people yeah, in it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah if, if we had missed Olympic Stadium, then uh, I think both me and Tim, uh, I should have retired from flying, and I probably think Tim is probably the same as well. What's if we missed that? And what's in your logbook? What have you logged it as? I've logged it as. Um, what have I logged it? I've logged it as. Actually, I just put uh, Paralympic opening ceremony, um, <laughs> which is something that's you know very unique. Um, I can't wait for the when the CA have to check my logbook over again when I do a renewal. Um, that'd be an interesting thing to see. But um, yeah, I know to, to log that as well was was incredible. Yeah, I was so proud and, and really honoured, and I just loved every second of it. Really. So what's next, Dave, for you? What's next? Um, Rio. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, if, if I could get the airplane certified and we could have it as a display airplane, I would love to do Rio. That would be fantastic. 
Um, who knows? It's four years away. A lot can happen in four years. I've started as a an operation controller down at Gamma in Farnborough. So at the moment, I'm I'm learning the ropes and working quite hard with them. And uh, obviously, still going to maintain my flying. Hopefully, well, who knows? Really, um, maybe in a couple of years' time, maybe a commercial license and. Uh, uh, and working for an airline Dave we wish you well with it and it was a fantastic thing to do brilliant, brilliant. and uh, it looks spectacular and uh, you yeah, know congratulations for doing it so brilliantly thank you very much I really appreciate it thank you Flaps in the air everywhere Back in July, it was the Royal International Air Tattoo at Fairford. I had VIP invites, so I went along to uh, go and capture some of the flavour of the show for you. Uh, In this first part of my report from there, we'll hear a stealth bomber pilot. And I also find out about BAE's UAV. That's their unmanned aerial vehicle. Mm, Very nice. So you had a VIP to see a UAV from BAE. Yeah. TIT. Tune, ident, test? No, just TIT. This is probably the highlight of the show. I'm stood here with Matt Calhoun. He's a pilot in the US Air Force. And there aren't many aircraft here that are guarded by armed police. One of them that is, is the B-2 Spirit Bomber, the stealth bomber, and Matt flies it. Hi, Matt, how are you? I'm doing fine, how are you? Very good, thank you. Now, they built 21 of these aircraft, Matt. That's correct. uh, And you're one of the lucky pilots to fly it. Tell me... What's it like to fly? Uh, I'd say it's, uh, I've been asked that question a few times here, um, and uh, I, I like to say it's, uh, it's pretty easy to fly as far as flying, hands flying, but uh, it's complex to employ just because there's a lot going on and there's high systems, but the airplane was designed so well uh, that uh, flying with your hands and uh, just the small inputs making here and there actually uh, aren't, too, aren't too difficult. Now, it's called the Stealth Bomber. How stealthy is it? Uh, stealthy. <laughs> <laughs> Stealthier than, I don't know, 777 and probably stealthier than Concorde. But, stealthy uh, as you need to be. Stealthy okay. as you need to be, okay. Sure. Would we know if you'd been somewhere or not? Uh, Would we? The first time we knew you were somewhere was the flash and the bang, I imagine. Uh, it depends. I mean, uh, you know I'm here right now. You can see the plane in here. But as far as uh, when we fly, you know, we're... Uh, we're on, we're on call to do things as needed, and uh, we usually uh, we usually try to minimize um, you know any any possibility of us being um, being detected before we actually need to employ it. Right. Now, a question that you may not be able to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you get much service in it these days? Does it see active service? Oh, it certainly does. I mean, we're doing training in it daily. Uh, if, if, if that's what you mean, we um, you know I we flew it here obviously, and we. We're, we have training sorties about about two to three, sometimes four a month. Guys get so they're flying daily. Um, we we like to keep the, we got to keep the pilots trained. We also have simulators that we train in. Uh, so all in all, it, it's getting a good good share of uh, flights still nowadays. I think this one we have here is the youngest of the fleet. Uh, it was doing test test flying before, and uh, so it, it doesn't have a whole lot of hours on it as far as uh, compared to other planes like say the B-52. But, uh, but yeah, um, we're flying them quite a bit, and, and they're flying well still. What do you have to do to become a pilot of one of these things? Well, generally, we're, uh, we're selected from uh, previous platforms. Now, sometimes we bring in new guys right out of pilot training. Not often, though. Um, it's an application process. You apply, uh, and you are, are selected you know, based on your history, what you've done in your past, and then uh, there's an interview process and all that. And then uh, from that... You know, we, we hand select uh, our pilots to uh, to come to the B2, depending on uh, how we feel they're qualified.
Okay, I'm with Drew Steele, who's uh, flight operations at BAE Systems. Uh, Drew, we're stood next to a machine that I would call a drone, that you may call a UAV. Basically, it's a machine with no human occupant, as it says on the side. It's unmanned. Correct, absolutely. Now, what does this do? Well, the, the UAV community is, it ranges from very small utility systems that go up and do some very basic surveillance, all the way up to what we would call a combat UAV, which would be designed for the first day of the war type action. This platform sits somewhere in the middle. It's a strategic, long-range, long-endurance, high-altitude, uninhabited air vehicle. And it's there to uh, survey large areas of territory over a long, long period of time, something in, in excess of tens of hours. And the strength of that is that UAVs don't get bored, they don't need to be fed, they don't need breaks, and they can give you that persistence, is the word that we use a lot, persistent presence over a battlefield or an area of surveillance. We, we talk about dull, dirty, and dangerous. This will be a noisy one. That's the trouble with recording at air and shows, air show, you get yeah. aircraft here. <laughs> we talk about dull, dirty, and dangerous, stuff that human beings get bored doing, stuff that's dangerous, for example, something like the Fukushima disaster, yep. monitoring that in a radioactive environment. There's no damage done to a person if you fly one of these. Of course. And dangerous, as I say, the first day of the war, to suppress enemy defenses, you could have a platform like this without risking human life. As a Rafale does its best to try and uh, drown me out, well, one of these machines I see has got uh, what looks like twin, uh, twin pushers on it, pusher props, yes? That's correct, yeah. Um, the, the aerodynamics. It's absolutely typical that the Rafale is trying to drown out the BA systems person. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the aerodynamics of the platform is to allow it to fly at high altitude. And the choice of the engine is that we, we need something very efficient at that sort of altitude. And a, a, a pusher turboprop like that is, is the ideal engine for it. So what kind of endurance do these have? You, you say tens of hours. Is, is that literally 20, 30, 40 hours? It, it's, it, it could be up to something like 40 hours, depending on the payload. Depending on the payload it carries, it's equipped to be able to carry a range of sensor systems and a range of weapons. Um, how long it will fly and how high it will go will depend on how much mass we put on it. And it's still in the development phase without a defined target in mind for which sensors and, and so on. But certainly tens of hours, 20 to 40, something like that. Now nobody's in it, so how's it flown? It's... Can I say that when you do get a man in an aircraft, that happens, <laughs> they show off. The concept of this aircraft is it's entirely autonomous. Uh, there is no pilot in the loop for normal operations. The system knows its own aerodynamics, it knows where it's going, and it'll fly itself there, it'll set up its search area, it'll conduct its search, all without any human interference. The human could then interrupt what the aircraft's doing if we wish to change its plan, or if the system has a, a, a critical decision to make and it would seek permission from the human on the ground. But as such, there is no pilot it's, a, it's a, almost like a mission systems commander that you would have on the ground. The aeroplane pilots itself. That's the concept. Flaps. Now, a few weeks ago, one of the listeners to Flaps podcast got in touch telling us that he's the first monocular, that's essentially one-eyed, uh, licensed PPL in the country. So we thought, with our disability theme in this edition, it'd be nice to get him on the phone. He's called Paul Ryan, and he's on with us now. And uh, I think it's fair to say, isn't it, Paul, you, you've had a slightly troubled journey to get your PPL, haven't you? Yes, um, it's, it's taken me five years purely to get the, the medical side of it. Uh, I'm actually classed as medically monocular, which means 
I only have um, functioning sight in one eye, um, so my left eye would be medically blind. So when I got into flying, um, it was mainly because of my neighbour, who's Jerry Humphreys, he's an ex-RAF pilot, and I went looking at, to get a medical at the age of 16. Uh, I went to the Irish, the Irish IAA, and they basically said, look, you're blind in one eye, you don't meet the requirements, there's nothing we can do for you. That day I was, I was gutted, I was gutted for, for months afterwards. Um, but then Jerry and a few other pilots said, look, why don't you try the FAA route and see if you can get an FAA medical. So I did that. I went up to our medical examiner, Dr. Colin Colleen. He does FAA medicals. Very nice gentleman. And he got me a class one, just, just to basically, so, so, I, so I had a medical. So worst case, I could go to America and get an FAA PPL. But he suggested going over to, going over to, the, to the UK CAA because they're very helpful. So rang them up, booked an appointment, um, and I got to to a lovely man by the name of um, Dr. Adrian Charlie. Very nice man, and he invited me over for an extended ophthalmology report. He said, look, you've got your eyesight is, is as good as someone with 20-20 vision in both eyes. I can't see a problem. Um, so well, they issued me with a, with a Class 2 medical. So if it was just as simple as going and seeing the guys at the CAA at the headquarters, why did they initially say that there was no chance of you flying? Well, I, I don't understand if it's as simple as just being having a slightly more stringent uh, examination. I, I don't understand why they knocked you back out of hand to start with. The IAA seemed, just seemed, seemed to be a little stricter, even though it's the same, supposed to be the same JAA rules. Yeah. They just seem a bit stricter on things. Because that's the point, um, isn't it, with the European licences? It's supposed to be one, one size fits all now, isn't it? Exactly. So, uh, in the end, when I got my class to, I went back to them and said, look, I'm going to have to go to the UK to do my training. Can you give me a class two Irish? And I'll do all my training in Ireland. And, it, and they said no. Crazy. So you, so you, got, your, uh, you got your medical and then you wanted to learn to fly. What happened there? I had the money saved up, so I said I'd go on an intensive course. I didn't want to go to, to Florida. I wanted one-on-one instruction. So I was actually booked to go to, um, to Limoges, to um, Suver, and I was due to go last September, but unfortunately, as you probably know, she, she passed away there a couple of weeks before I was due to go over. So I had to change my plans. I had my time booked off work, so I got hold of um, Derek Davidson, who I'd done my ground, my ground schooling with, and he got me a slot on the Isle of Wight, based at Sandown. So I was there for six weeks, done my 48 hours, and uh, set the test of 48 hours. That was very good. So you're, uh, you're all sorted, and, and, and since then, you've got a Class 1 um, medical as well now, haven't you? Yes, I went, I went back to the CEA again, very helpful a second time, and they said, yeah, we'll give you the Class 1, which was fantastic. The only deviation is that for commercial privileges, I have to have a second pilot there. So is this, is this where the obsession is going to take you, Paul? Are you now, having gone through all these hoops, you, you're going to take it to the, the extreme and become a professional pilot? Is that the plan? Well, that's the plan if, if, if the wallet allows, so we'll see, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But I, the reason I was coming on the podcast was just to let people know that if, even if you've read all the, the medical requirements and you think yourself that you're not medically, you're medically fit, it is worthwhile going to the CEA. They're very, very helpful. Dr. John Pitts is the man to talk to. Um, he's very nice to talk to. If you give him a call and explain your situation, I'm sure they'll help you out as best they could. All right, so, so what is his name again? It's uh, Dr. John Pitts. Dr. Dr. John Pitts at the CAA. If anyone listening at the moment is in a similar position, uh, speak to Dr. John Pitts and he should be able to sort you out. And they'll do all they can to give you a medical. So have you done much flying since you've uh, got your licence? Yes, well, my, my, my instructor in Ireland, who I did my first few hours with, by the name of Neil Rankin, um, he's helped me out quite a lot. And um, I own a share in a, a diesel 172 now, so getting lots of flying done. So it's a great little touring machine 
all we need now is a bit of sunshine to go flying. That's amazing. <laughs> hey, so you can you can have all the medicals in the world, all the qualifications in the world, but that's the weather is the thing, isn't it? And over here, you mightn't fly. You mightn't fly for six weeks because of the weather. So, well, well, listen, Paul. It's great to speak to you, and thanks for coming on and letting us know. Because, because I know you know people do worry about their medical and things, especially as you get older and that. But it's 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 <laughs> it's great news, and it's happening to all of us. Let's be honest. Uh, but it's great news to know that it's been a happy ending for you, and uh, uh, lots of uh, lots of hours happy flying, Paul. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's Mason's minute. Someone asked me once, "What's the difference between being a military?" aeroplane captain and an airline aeroplane captain one of the cutest answers i could possibly give is about sixty thousand pounds a year the levels of responsibility are very similar whether you're flying an aeroplane that has 400 people on board or one person on board you're responsible for a heck of a lot of machinery and what's more you're responsible for a heck of a lot of life and goings on beneath you be it a couple of thousand feet and a Cessna 150 or 30 or 40,000 feet and a Typhoon jet or a Boeing 767. So the responsibility is not just in your aeroplane and to your passengers and crew, it's beyond and below you. The consequences of getting things wrong in the air, making an incorrect decision in the air, of course can reverberate horribly on the ground. But getting back to the thread of things, what's the difference between being in command of a modern airliner and a a military aircraft? Well, certainly a specific difference is if you're travelling in a certain direction in a tornado jet, be it high level or low level, and you want to change that direction, then it takes barely a few seconds of thought and action to be darting off, uh, doing all sorts of stuff 90, 180 degrees from the direction you were last travelling in. In a modern airliner, if you want to change your direction or if you suddenly realise you've overshot a point and need to turn, it takes a couple of minutes to get halfway around and four minutes to get all the way around. And uh, if you sit and look at your watch for two or four minutes, then um, it takes a very long time. So the simple manoeuvring of big aeroplanes by comparison with small aeroplanes takes on an entirely separate level of importance. I recall when, shortly after I left the RAF and joined commercial aviation, I honestly thought that because of my experience and tremendous ability to fly aeroplanes, I would take the immense salary that the airline had offered me and enjoy getting my excitement elsewhere because the flying itself would be boring. Nothing could be further from the truth. Absolutely nothing. I... Remember once getting home in tears, about five or six months after I'd started in commercial aviation, and my wife asked me what was wrong, and I explained that no more than two or three years previously, I'd been able to take 24 aeroplanes into a hostile sky, control each one of them as well as my own, give orders to other crews to make both tactical and aviation decisions whilst I led missions and all of my missions in the Gulf were successful so I must have done a pretty reasonable job of it and here I was now unable to fly half an aeroplane I'd got a perfectly competent pilot on the flight deck and most of what was going on seemed to me to be happening far quicker than I could cope with it so it was a different life Um, and I'm delighted to say that as the months went by uh, I was able to make much more of a contribution on the flight deck rather than rely very heavily on the tremendous professionals that I met all the way along
But I do recall a few days into commercial aviation and the days when we had the delights of being able to walk into the cabin during the cruise phase of flight, leaving our opposite number to control the flight deck on their own. Uh, we could obviously we could dart back within seconds if we were needed. And someone recognised me and asked if I missed my squadron. They were aware that my old squadron was now in Inchilik in northern Turkey, um, flying pol airborne policing operations. They were based in pretty antique Second World War Hessian tents, and it was a, a sort of tent city that they lived in, eating sand sandwiches flavoured with mosquitoes, getting no access to a decent social life of any sort. Did I miss it? There I was at 35,000 feet, facing backwards, eating a salmon sandwich on my way to Barbados. Uh, I think I missed it about the same as I'd miss a boil on my bum. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. Time for a quick catch-up with an old friend of Flaps Podcast. Jonathan Nicholson from the CAA has had a very busy summer with all the airspace restrictions for the Olympics. So post-Olympics, he joins us on the phone now. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, guys. So, are you relieved that it's all over then now? Uh, very much so, yeah. Well, and sad, obviously, because we all enjoyed the Olympics and it was great fun and everything. But purely from a work perspective, yes, very relieved. This it is the... was much, much better than we thought it was going to be. This is the first day off you've had in about, all four years, isn't it, I think? Yeah, so something like that. It feels like it, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, was it all worth it? Um, uh, well, I, I guess so. I mean, certainly from my personal perspective, from what we did as far as communicating to everybody and making sure everybody understood and knew what they needed to do, that was a huge success and we're very pleased with that. But obviously we acknowledge the fact that for a lot of people, it was not what was needed at this particular time as far as economy and flying and general, being able to get out there. But that's what was required, and that's what we had to do, I'm afraid. Were there any infringements? Were there many? There were 13 in total. Um, but the big thing for us was that none of them actually required an interception from the typhoons or the helicopters, which was absolutely brilliant. Um, we thought there would be interceptions. We thought there'd be lots of interceptions. That's what we were building up for and dealing with all the flak that came from that, and there were none. There were 13, uh, 13 infringements, but none of them actually were serious enough to need uh, an interception, which was great. And everything back to normal now? Yeah, everything totally back to normal. The Paralympic restrictions are finished now as well, um, although they, those were obviously much smaller and didn't have much impact on people. Um, but everything totally back to normal and the sun's out. So, yeah, get flying, people. There you go. And uh, have you learned any lessons for the next time we stage the Olympics, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> yes, hopefully, hopefully I, I will have been retired by then. And, uh, uh, and it will be uh, much easier for whoever comes next. Because, uh, I mean, one of the big things was the, the, the need for security reasons for a known environment so they knew where every aircraft was um, which obviously with people not having transponders or whatever caused an issue by the time that we ever get a chance of holding the Olympics again I can't believe that there won't be systems even on board a microlight or a hang glider that would enable people to show where they are so potentially it could be much easier and much less restrictive Well all those many years in the future uh, we, we, we won't be flying planes we'll all have hoverboards like in Back to the Future anyway so everyone will be flying so, <laughs> Yes fantastic yeah, so that, that, that'll be a huge air traffic problem <laughs> so uh, they can deal with that then Hang on jo Jonathan breaking news Rio can't afford it we're doing it next time Yeah <laughs> 
well, actually, I was seeing to uh, send some stuff over to the Brazilian CIA in the uh, in the sort of goodwill of passing things on. I was going to send them everything that that we've done. So uh, um, they haven't asked me over yet, though. But well, I could uh, I could <laughs> I could see you as a consultant to the the Brazilians with with your nice sort of frilly shirt on, Jonathan. I could see yeah. that, and, and your maracas in your hand. Actually, believe it or not, I do have Brazil, the time is now, Olympic t-shirt on today. So, <laughs> Listen, it's lovely to speak to you, Jonathan, and, and, uh, you and uh, we'll enjoy some time off. Have a rest. Thank you. Take care. And, and thanks, we should say as well, thank you to everybody within the GA community, particularly the GA associations um, and the media and people like yourselves have all been absolutely fantastic at helping to get the message across. Without the work that the GA associations and others did, it wouldn't have been uh, uh, the situation we had. Flaps Podcast. Thanks very much, Jonathan. This is the Flaps Podcast. Thanks for listening. And let's get back to part two of Mark's report from this year's air tattoo at Fairford. Okay, I found Matthew Thompson from the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. Hiya, Matthew. Um, I've seen uh, three of your aircraft flying over today, the Lancaster and two Spitfire. Is that correct? It is indeed, yes. How much work has to be put in to keep these these magnificent aircraft flying? An immense amount. Uh, during the summer months, it's basically just keeping them up and keeping them going. So you've got your, your normal flight servicings before and after flight servicings. Uh, however, we do get snags. It's going to happen. They're old aircraft. Uh, so they need fixing. Uh, the Hurricane at the minute, one of the major ones, it's been down for nearly a week. That's why it's not here today, because we've had to do an engine change, which is not a simple task, really. But then we get to the end of the summer servicing, and we do the winter, which we do quite deep strips, and uh, rebuilding and, re- and fixing any parts that are broken. Where do you get spares from? We do hold quite a lot of spares. We've held them for quite a lot of years. Uh, Spitfire-wise... There are quite a lot of companies out there that still make the parts, or we try and make them ourselves. Is it hard to, uh, to manufacture them yourselves, or is it...? Uh... Uh, certain parts, yes. <laughs> What's the hardest part to have to kind of manufacture well, them? Well, uh, some of the panels for us, uh, obviously, we'll just have a sheet of metal. We've got the correct metal specs, and we'll have to bend it, shape it, uh, drill it, and make sure it fits. When it comes to funding for this, uh, where do you get the money from? Uh, well, we're funded through the RAF. We have a budget of around £3.5 million for the year through the RAF. Other funding is donations from uh, the public, really. Links Lanks also donate because of the Lancaster as well. And it's just, yeah, generosity and charity, really. What's it like when you sit in one of these old, old aircraft and the engine starts, it fires up and, you know, you roll down the runway and take to the sky? What's that feel like? It's unexplainable. It is the best feeling in the world. For me, uh, people say, oh, yes, I work at the BBMF. I don't. It's not work if you enjoy it. If you love it as much as everybody on there does, it's not like work. It's awesome. As we speak, the Breitling jets are flying over. But for many people, I'm sure the highlights of today will have been the Lancaster and the Spitfires and, and all the work that you guys do. So it must be a really great feeling. It, it really is. Speaking to the public around the trailer today, uh, Everybody, everybody loves the Lancaster. The Lancaster is everybody's favourite. The Spitfires, I've got a poncho myself for the Hurricane. The Hurricane is my baby and I do love her. But yes, the Lancaster, with it being the only one in the country and the one of only two in the world, definitely, everybody loves it. And then I caught up with Ruth Massey from 612 Flying Squadron. 
Um, our aim is to enable air cadets who are between 13 and 20 years old to fly. Um, they get to their first flight when they're 13-3 if they're lucky um, and then they can go on when they get to 16 and learn to solo one of our aircraft. So how many young people do you get doing this? We, um, well across the Corps there's about 40,000 cadets, um, there's I think about 26 gliding squadrons across the Corps which is based across the UK. Um, we fly, I think we did about a thousand what we call gigs which are um, gliding induction courses which is their very first have a go at it and um, then last year we awarded over a hundred um, solo gliding wings to over 16 year old cadets. Brilliant and where do you fly from? We fly from Abingdon which is not far from here at Fairford. So we hopped over 15 minute flight on Wednesday and we'll go back on Monday. And what are the aircraft that you fly? I can see here there's a, there's a motor glider and also just a normal kind of glider. Yeah, so there's what a, a winch glider, um, which some of the cadets fly in. We actually, we use the powered motor glider, which is a Vigilant. Uh, we know it as a Vigilant. It's a Grob 109B, um, is its proper technical name. And you did a, a solo yourself in one of these last year, didn't you? Yes, last 30th of June last year I did my first solo flight, which was very exciting. A date imprinted in your mind, I'm absolutely. sure. Absolutely, yes. absolutely, yeah. It was an amazing experience. Uh, I'm very jealous of the 16-year-olds who get to do it before they drive a car. Well, I can imagine. What's it like when you, when you turn the engine off and it all goes quiet? Um, that's just the, uh, amazing. It goes very, very quiet. Um, unlike the aircraft about to go past us. Um, it goes, it's a, um, you can hear the wind rushing past you, um, but the feeling is amazing. Uh, it's just so um, stunning that you're up in the air, there's nothing disturbing you. Um, it's just you and the aircraft, it's just amazing. So that's it for our Olympic and Paralympic bandwagon special. And just like the Olympics themselves, there'll be a long wait until the next podcast. I hope not. Look, you can email us if you want to, like Paul Ryan did. We are mail at flapspodcast.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and get in touch that way. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again. Hopefully before Rio. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps.